Hey everyone, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and on today's episode, I've got sort of a different kind of top 10 list for you. In fact, it's a top 15 list, and it's not about gear or plugins or mix mistakes. I'm actually going to be talking about the top 15 existential crises of audio engineers. You know, being an audio engineer, producer, mixer, and or studio owner is really tough. It's a unique field of study, a highly complex craft to master, and overall just a very strange career path. I know because it's the path that I took 17 years ago. And in that time, I've had my fair share of existential crises, you know, moments where I had to ask myself these big, difficult questions that could alter the course of my career or my life. Also, for much of that time, I've been making this podcast, connecting with other people on the path and hearing their stories and talking about their situations, trading stories, sharing frustrations. And that's helpful, you know, for all of us, because in many ways, this career can make us feel quite isolated, especially in the modern era. The majority of artists don't have a budget to hire a 10-person super team of highly skilled engineers and producers, and all of us are working together and learning from each other, and each of us has our specialties. In fact, nowadays, most people hire one person who is responsible for all of it, and that person is us. It's a lot of pressure, and it can cause a lot of turmoil and frustration, but it leads to a lot of lessons along the way. So on today's episode, I wanted to talk about these top 15 existential crises. These are things that Almost every audio engineer I know has gone through at some point or will go through at some point or another. Again, I know because I've been through all of them myself. Some of them I'm still working on to this day. I don't necessarily have clean-cut answers for all of them, but hopefully I can share some stories and some insights about each one and give you some tips on how to cope when you encounter them. I tried to organize this list somewhat chronologically, meaning in order of how most engineers will experience them along their career path. Even though we all have slightly different paths, we often encounter the same hurdles, the same bridges to cross, similar peaks and valleys along the way. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn a lot. And at the very least, I hope you feel a little bit less alone on this path. So let's get started. Number one, will I ever be good at this? This is arguably the first crisis that most audio engineers will face, usually very early on in their journey. This could very well occur in the first few weeks or months of trying to record stuff for the first time. You see, there's a common arc that many of us follow. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You're young-ish, you love music, maybe you play an instrument or write some songs, maybe you're in a band. And you get the urge, for whatever reason, to get into recording. Maybe your friend does it, maybe you recorded somewhere with your band and you thought, man, I could do that, or maybe you thought, this was really cool, I want to try that. Or maybe you thought, well, I can't afford to record with other people, so I guess I'll just try to record myself. Regardless, you got some gear, you started learning the fundamentals, you start figuring out the basics of how a DAW works, and you start making some recordings. You listen back to those recordings and realize pretty quickly, wow, this sounds terrible. It's at this point when you encounter the first fork in the road, and likely your first audio engineering existential crisis. Will I ever be good at this? Can I actually do this? Why is it so bad? Is there any hope for me whatsoever? 
right? Now, because you just started doing it, if you're a total newbie, you likely won't feel too defeated. Most people don't give up at this point, you know? Most people are like, okay, fair. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm really new at this. I just need to learn more. So then you read books, you get on forums or social media, you talk to your friends, you watch YouTube tutorials, maybe take some online classes, maybe sign up for Pure Mix or Mix with the Masters, whatever you can do to learn more about this. You start out with basic questions, the same questions we all have, like what's the best way to record an acoustic guitar or what's the best mic for hip hop vocals or whatever. Little do you know, these are not even really the right questions to ask. But for the time being, it gets you some basic information. You continue down the path and keep practicing, keep working on stuff, trying to learn as much as you can. You do this for a while only to realize that your recordings still aren't that good. Maybe they've gotten slightly better, but nothing you seem to do really seems to sound remotely as good as your favorite recordings. So sooner or later, you realize you've made a big loop and you're back at the same fork in the road and forced to ask the question again. Will I ever be good at this? Can I actually do this? Why are my recordings so bad? Now, at this point, some people give up. They say, you know, it's fine. I tried. I don't actually need to do this for real. I don't really want to do this for money. I just need to be able to record basic demos. It's fine. I'd rather still record with someone else for the real stuff, someone who really knows what they're doing. Or perhaps you might say, you know, this is good enough for me. I don't really care if it sounds pro or whatever. I'll still just put it up on SoundCloud and show my friends and it's whatever. Or, and this is a big or, an or that most of you listening to this podcast decided to pursue. Or, instead of giving up, something inside of your brain flips. And it's like a new obsession forms in an instant. And people decide to dive headfirst into the infinite abyss of audio land. And even though they don't really know what they're doing, or if they'll get better, or if they can make money at it, or if they even want to, for whatever reason, they're just absolutely consumed with the idea of figuring out how to get a better recording than they did yesterday. Why? I don't really know, but that's the path that most of us chose. For whatever reason, we're the type of people that just couldn't scratch that itch. We just had to know, why does my acoustic guitar sound so bad? Why does my vocal sound so bad? Why does my mix sound so bad? The answer's got to be right around the corner, right? Like, any day now, I'll figure out the trick. Well, spoiler alert, there is no trick. The path is a long and winding road, and if you're looking for a clean-cut answer to why do my recordings sound so bad, you'll likely be disappointed. There aren't really any shortcuts, there's not really any ways to cheat the system. The truth is, it's complicated, and if you really want to get better at this, you have to dive in and go for it and work at it for many years. So to answer the original question, will I ever be good at this? The answer is you absolutely can be good at this, but it takes a lot of time, a lot of practice, a lot of effort, and a lot of failures. But if you love it, if you have an obsession with it, that nagging itch that I described that you just can't seem to scratch, you'll keep walking on the path. And the longer you keep walking on the path, the more you'll learn, the more you'll grow, the better you'll get. And hopefully resources like the Recording Lounge podcast have helped you or can help you. 
And if you join our Discord community and you watch the YouTube videos, hopefully I can save you some time. That's one of my biggest goals with this podcast is to help save people time from going down these sort of offshoot paths, right? And trying to figure out, well, how come I haven't done this? And what about this? And hopefully I can save you time and say, you know what? Don't worry about that. Focus on this and your recordings will get better. That's it. You know, I'm of the belief that anyone can do this if they put in the work. The question is not really, can you do it? It's, will you? Number two, should I try to go to school for audio or get an internship or even just move to a big music city? Now, if you've followed the podcast for a while, then you may know my thoughts on college already. But regardless, this crisis is something that I see in a lot of students and something that a lot of podcast listeners have asked me about over the years. There's a certain point, usually between 16 and 20 years old, where people start thinking, well, there's so much to know about this, and I do really enjoy it. I really wish I had a definite path of learning, you know, to learn more about this. Maybe I should go to school for it. Or should I try to get an internship? What about the money or the time? Is an audio degree even worth anything? This is a tough one for me to answer because I know that even speaking as someone who has taught in institutions, I'm extremely biased. After all these years, I'm still very much of the opinion that going to college for audio production is, generally speaking, a waste of money. I'll summarize why very briefly. Number one, college tuition has gotten insanely out of hand in the last 30 or 40 years. In fact, it's outpaced inflation by four times, meaning it costs a larger percentage of your income to attend college than it ever has. Number two, you don't really need a degree to work in the audio industry. It's mostly a freelance industry at this point. Number three, most professional audio engineers I know did not go to school for audio. Some did, of course, but most didn't, and they're doing fine. And number four, clients don't care if you went to school for audio. No client cares. They might be curious, they might ask, but they don't care if you have a degree or not. In fact, if you're doing great work, and you didn't go to school for it, then they might be more impressed. Now, do I think college in general can be great? Well, sure, for some people and some personality types, I think college can be a great thing, especially if you go to learn about business or accounting or management. These are all really important skills if you want to run a business someday. But an audio engineering degree specifically you know, truth is, most college students I meet don't know any more or less than the people who just did it on their own for four years from 18 to 22 because they had a day job, they actually made some money, maybe they bought some gear, and they worked on audio with every spare minute of their time. And four years later, they learned probably more than the people who did it for school. Now, yes, sometimes you can make some great connections in school. Sometimes they can even hook you up with internships. Those are good things, but they're not guaranteed. And maybe 20 years ago, my advice would be different, but the price of college has just gotten so incredibly expensive. And the sheer number of graduates that these schools are pumping out year after year, I mean, it's not sustainable for the market for how many jobs actually are out there. I mean, that category is shrinking and shrinking every single year. As I said, this career is gradually becoming more and more isolated, and the days of hiring a 10-person team are kind of over. Now, 
You might be able to get an internship or an assistant job at a local studio, but anybody can apply for those things usually. And as someone who has put out applications for interns and had interviews for interns and assistants and had multiple interns over the years, I'm going to pick the person who is most knowledgeable and the person who I feel comfortable around, right? Someone I'm going to have to be around for many hours a day, someone that will be around my clients. So to me, you can learn all of these skills without school. And one of the best ways to learn about the soft skills, working with people, working in the room, knowing when to be quiet and just listen, you can get an internship. You could do that probably at 18. Now, on that note, I am very pro-internship or apprenticeship. I think in general, it's a much better way to learn about the craft firsthand, working with someone who's already making money at it, doing what you want to do, and you get to work with them and watch them in real-world situations with real clients. Sure, some of these internships are unpaid, but some of them will pay. None of them will cost you as much as college. I mean, think about it. Even if you had an unpaid internship and lived in an apartment and cut all of your living expenses to say, let's say $3,000 a month, which is slightly less than the national average. Now, for $3,000 a month, that's $36,000 a year, which is $5,000 less than the cost of Full Sail University for one year. And that doesn't include a place to live or food or clothing or your car insurance. That's just tuition. So yeah, my point is college is insanely expensive. So if you can get an internship or an apprenticeship or better yet, an assistant position, you can learn a lot, maybe even make some money in a real world studio environment. For information on that, I highly recommend listening to episode 108 of the podcast, which is all about studio internships, as well as checking out my blog post on my website, recordingloungepodcast.com, called How to Apply for Studio Internships. Trust me, most people do it wrong, so please arm yourself with the knowledge of how to do it well. Now, as an in-between option, something in between not going to college at all and going to a big fancy recording school, you might consider doing something like Blackbird Academy, which is a 24-week program, and it costs about $24,000. So, yes, it's similar in price to college tuition, but it's only for six months, You'll be learning and working in one of the best studios in the world, and then you'll be done, right? It's like a fast-track course done in six months. Now, that being said, I don't have a whole lot to say about Blackbird specifically. I don't know a lot of people who have done that program. It does seem cool. Blackbird is an awesome studio, but I just don't have the information or data to share, like, how good the program is, so don't ask me for specifics on that. I'm just saying it is an option that's sort of in between, and it's maybe a little more structured than just trying to learn on your own, but you're not out $200,000 and four years of your time. Now, what about moving to a music city? Now, that one depends on a lot of factors. How much music is in your current city? Do you live in a small town? What kind of music is popular in your city? How do you like your current city? Where does your family live? How much do you like your family? <laughs> there are so many factors to this, right? Like I could probably do a whole episode about it, but suffice it to say for now that if you live in a really small town or a town with very little music, it may be necessary for you to move to at least a relatively large city to make a career out of audio. For example, if you live in Waldron, Kansas, which has a population of nine people, 
Seriously, uh, yeah, you might need to move to Kansas City, the metro area of which has a population of 2.3 million. Even if it's not L.A. or New York, at the very least, the odds of having more music and arts culture are much higher, and the odds of you succeeding in the recording world are much, much higher. There's just more people. Something else to consider is how much you like the music in your area. You know, if you live in Lubbock or Denton, Texas or Austin, and you don't like country music or you don't like folk music or singer-songwriters, you may need to move somewhere else. Maybe not, but it might be a little bit tricky to get sustainable work if you don't like any of the music in your area, right? If you live in Atlanta and you don't like any hip-hop and you don't want to work on any hip-hop, you might want to move somewhere else. But You don't have to. You could try to make it, but you have to be aware of the market in your area and whatever that may be. Now, what I find is that people who grow up in a certain market who are actually from there, they generally seem to like a lot of the things around that market. Not always, but, you know, it's like if you grew up in Atlanta, then you probably have grown up hearing hip-hop. If you grow up in Texas, you probably have grown up hearing country music. And so you probably kind of have a soft spot for it. And just be aware that it might not be your favorite genre, but if you like it, if you don't mind it, then you can probably have a career working on music in that area. Regardless, my point is about 80% of the work that I do, the work that pays my bills, is with musicians and artists who live within a two or three hour radius of me. So if I didn't like any of the music in a two or three hour radius around me, then I might be unhappy doing my job. And or if people had to drive really far to get to me, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, then it might be a little bit harder. So if you live way out, then that can be an issue as well. Now, also keep in mind that the bigger and more established the music city, the more competition there will be. So it may not be a good idea to, say, move to Nashville when you first start because the competition will be very stiff. You need to be ready to compete in those kinds of markets. You know, you need to be ready to find your niche, find your place in the scene. And if you have little to no skills, you're just starting out, you're going to be at a massive disadvantage to someone who shows up and is already very skilled or someone who grew up there. If you just so happen to grow up in one of these larger markets, you already have a lot of connections. You know people, friends of friends of friends and relatives and classmates and, you know, co-workers, right? Like those networks are powerful and some of those networks can last you your entire career, right? So if there are people in Nashville like that already, and I know there are, it's a lot easier for them to make connections and get work and, you know, than someone who shows up who doesn't know anyone, has minimal skills, and doesn't really know what they're doing. Now, on the flip side of that argument, it is trickier to make connections when you're older. It's just a fact of life. People tend to go out less, have fewer experiences out in the public when they're older. That's a statistical fact, right? And when you're young, you're going to school, you're working jobs with other people probably around your age or at least similar age, and you're more likely to go out and meet people, go to shows, go to bars, go to clubs, whatever. So yeah, there is an argument to be made for it'd be better to move when you're younger because then you can take time and develop a network of your own versus waiting until you're 50 and yeah, maybe you're super skilled, but you don't know anybody at all. Now, I think maybe my recommendation would be if you're going to move somewhere, 
I wouldn't go when you're brand new, but I also wouldn't go when you're 50, right? If you're 50, you better have a reason to go. You better have contacts in that area. You better have something to go to, right? Whereas maybe a good point would be sometime in your 20s where you're not a total noob. You've been doing it. You've been practicing. You've been learning. You've been getting better. Sometime in your 20s, you're still young enough to kind of fit under that curve where you can meet people, go out, have good connections, go to shows. You still, you know, have that flexibility in your life. Maybe you don't have kids yet. Maybe you don't have, you know, a ton of living expenses. You don't have a house or, you know, college tuition to pay for for your kids or whatever. So, you know, maybe there's a sweet spot in there. Just keep that in mind. Those are some things to consider. With all of these things, whether it's college or an internship or moving to a bigger city, you really have to look carefully at all of the factors. There's not one easy answer for everyone or for any of these things. There are exceptions to all of these things, right? just totally depends on each person and their own financial situation and their own hopes and dreams. None of these decisions guarantee success or happiness or fame or money, but really nothing in life does, right? So just think about it carefully, try to weigh all the options that you can, and try to trust what your gut tells you. Existential crisis number three. Do I actually enjoy recording with other people or do I really just want to record myself? Now, this one often happens early on in people's careers as well, but not always. Really, it usually happens after the first few times you try working on recordings with other people, either bringing people in to help with your music or recording other people's music. Either way, it's often a mixed bag of emotions. I'm sure we all remember group projects in college. Ah, yes, it's almost as if I could hear all of your groans from all over the globe. Typically speaking, there's a sort of cognitive dissonance that happens with audio people in group settings, at least initially. Like, so much of this job is lonely and, in fact, requires isolation. We learn on our own. We practice on our own. We improve on our own. We experiment and test things on our own. We mix on our own. There's just a lot of isolation in this field. And to some degree, that's a comfort. In those situations, we only have ourselves to fight with. We only have ourselves to answer to. We only have our opinions to care about. And guess what? We usually win our own arguments. <laughs> but as soon as you start working with other people, you realize it's a lot harder than doing stuff on your own. It's hard dealing with other personality types, and it's hard dealing with other opinions, especially when it comes to something as personal and subjective as music. Many people hit a fork in the road at this point. Depending on how those first handful of experiences go, they may swear off working with others entirely. They may say, you know, screw this. I hate working with other artists or producers or songwriters. I just don't like all that energy in the room. There's too many cooks in the kitchen. I'm just going to do this on my own. Or if you're like me, maybe you got a lot of satisfaction from taking someone's mediocre song and making it sound a little less mediocre, especially if they were really happy with the results. That gives you confidence and helps you move forward. And this is a tough fork in the road, you know? Some people just really don't like collaborating. And in fact, sometimes they do better work by themselves. You know, some famous artists have said that the best art is selfish, that the best art is inherently about you, exactly an expression of you and you alone. But other people really hate working alone. And in fact, they thrive in group settings. These differences can have a massive impact on your career. 
My advice is to not judge your first few experiences too harshly. There's a high likelihood that if your first few experiences working with other musicians or producers or songwriters or engineers was terrible, then you may have just been working with the wrong people, right? There's a lot of different kinds of people out there, and we all have different ways of doing this. And it's also possible that you're the problem and that you're the one who's hard to work with. And if you're being honest, you have to accept that as a possibility. And that's stuff that you can work on. That's something, though, it's a little bit harder to see. You have to self-reflect and really kind of take stock of that and be like, am I the one who's being inflexible? Am I the one who's being rude? Am I the one who's being, you know, like now, if you are the artist, right, from an artist standpoint, it doesn't really matter as much. There's nothing that says you have to work with other people on your art. You don't have to co-write, you know, like it's a weird narrative to me that you have to do that. And that's what the best artists do. So you should do it too. You know, I just don't buy that. In fact, most of the time artists, some of the best artists are isolationist by nature. There are many examples of artists that do everything by themselves. Todd Rundgren, Tame Impala, Les Paul, and many, many electronic music producers. You also have people like Prince, who maybe hired one engineer, but he self-produced, he wrote everything, and pretty much played everything as well. Even Stevie Wonder played pretty much everything on his records. Or you have artists like Wolfpack, who mostly record and mix themselves, but then they bring in other musicians and session singers and collaborators on the music side. You might like working with other musicians, but maybe not other engineers, or vice versa. Or maybe you like neither. And my point is, it's all fine. As long as you feel like you've given it a fair chance and you've really tried to work with some talented people and different kinds of people, and you really can be honest with yourself of like, I like doing this or I don't, or I like working with musicians, but not engineers. I like working with engineers, but not musicians. As long as you can have that ability to self-reflect and be honest, then you know, trust your gut on that one. However, if we're talking about the audio engineer side, when it comes to being an audio engineer or a producer or running a recording studio and working with clients and making money, well, yeah, you're probably going to have to learn how to work with different kinds of people, with different opinions, from different backgrounds and political affiliations, with different music tastes and different ways of communicating at different levels of skill. You'll have to learn how to work with artists, songwriters, engineers, producers, mixers, mastering engineers. And if that's not something you want to do, then that may not be the path for you because that's literally the job. So when you face this existential crisis, I would give it some time, try to be patient, find people that you actually like working with, really give it a fair shot. And when you finally get the chance to work with those people, then you have some fair data to help you answer the question. Obviously, nobody likes working with difficult people, but how did you feel about working with cool people? Did you enjoy it? Did they make the project better than you could have on your own? Did it take more time or less? Was it more fun or less? These are all important questions to ask yourself. And again, just try to be honest with yourself and try to understand and be honest with yourself that there are implications for whichever path you choose. Maybe one of those paths will make you happier, but it won't make any money. Maybe another path will make you miserable, but it will make tons of money. Those are real things that you might have to grapple with. And personally, I would take the one that makes you happy. You're probably just going to be better off in the long run. Number four. This one is sort of related to the last one, but it's something that people deal with after they start working with clients. They've taken that path, right? They've decided, okay, I want to try to make money at this. I want to work with clients. I want to work with other artists and bands. And they face this crisis. Why is it so much harder to get client stuff 
to sound as good as my own. I can't tell you how many engineers I've mentored over the years, and I've tried to warn them about the difference between recording themselves versus recording other people. After a few years of working on their own stuff, I can see them start to get a little bit cocky, a little bit proud about their abilities, and they start talking about working with other people. And I try to give them a little bit of a gentle reality check, and I say, well, you know, just know it's a whole different ballgame as soon as you start working with people. It's way, way harder. And most of the time, they don't believe me. But as soon as they start working with other people, then they get it. The truth is, almost no musician on the planet will be as obsessed with the sound of recordings as much as audio engineers are. They're not concerned with how easy will this be to mix, or is this muddy in the low mids, is it harsh in the high mids? They don't really think about that, and that can be super frustrating. Another thing is that many audio engineers are also quite good musicians. And we've spent countless hours trying to learn the ins and outs of what makes a good drum recording and what makes a good bass recording and what makes a good guitar recording. And as soon as we start working with clients, we realize, oh, they don't know any of that. Many of them don't care to know. They don't really care what it takes to get a good recording. They just want one. And I can only push them so far left or right to be something that they're not. Right? I can't make a drummer hit the snare drum consistently in the next 10 minutes because that's a skill that takes years to develop. Right? I can't instantly make this bass player play slightly behind the beat because that's a really nuanced thing that takes lots of time to master. I can't magically make a singer feel comfortable singing to a click or with headphones because these things just take time to adjust to, sometimes years. As audio people, we realize this relatively quickly. In the first few years of recording or mixing, we start to get a grasp on what it really takes to get a good recording. And the real quest becomes, okay, how do I do that? For example, we learn pretty early that a good drum recording comes from a good drummer, plus good drums, plus good tuning, plus good drum parts plus good performance, plus good room, plus good mics, plus good mic techniques, right? The good rule, right? We learn that pretty early on, but how do I achieve those things? What makes a good drum kit good? What makes a good drummer good? What makes a good drum performance? That is what the path starts to look like after a while. And you realize that those early questions you asked, like what are the best mics for drums, were the wrong questions. Instead, diving really deep into specifics and trying to learn about what makes each little component work. Those are the right questions. And musicians and artists, the people that we're working for, they don't really ask themselves those questions. And that means that their experience with music as it relates to sound is very different than ours. We learn this craft by learning the optimal ways to get the best sound out of music. But musicians are mostly concerned with expressing what they want to express. And a lot of their habits are not necessarily the, quote, most ideal for recording situations. Maybe they hit their cymbals way too hard, or they have inconsistent dynamics, or maybe they can't play with a metronome, or maybe they can't sing well when wearing headphones. But that was never their goal. Their, what, their goal wasn't to get into music to record it. I mean, and I'm the same way. When I was a kid, when I started playing guitar, I didn't get into music to record it. I got into music to write songs, to play in a band, to play guitar, to be a rock star. That's what I wanted when I was 13 years old. 
So it's unfair to just assume that musicians should get it or how come they don't know? Because they don't, right? They didn't take the same path that we took. They're not on this audio engineering path with us. So like it or not, this is something you're going to deal with. It will be harder to get amazing sounds when working with your average band or your average client. Now, when I'm working on a session that's basically me plus a handful of super experienced session players, well, those usually sound awesome. And it's because that's one of the main differences between your average musician and a professional session player is that the session player is not only a musician, they're a musician who understands what it takes to get a good recording, right? That's maybe the best definition I have for the difference between an average musician and a session player. So it's not really a fair fight if we're talking about me plus five session players who are all professional musicians and all of us in the room understand what it takes to get a good recording. We've done it for many, many years versus a college band of 22-year-olds who have only recorded once in their life. I mean, that's just not a fair fight. My point is, when you face this crisis, it's often your brain telling you, okay, the source is king and you along with those super experienced professional session players, you guys are just better at getting good recordings than your clients are because that's your job. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it, it seems a little obvious, but that's really the truth of it. Like, all of you are on this path. You are all working to get great recordings. They're on a different path entirely. And it's very possible that you and those session players are just better musicians than your average client. Because, again, that's your job to be a great musician, to be a great engineer, to be a great producer. Your job is literally music. And a lot of clients might just be hobbyists and artists and people who do this for fun, for enjoyment, for personal satisfaction. Not everybody is going to take this as seriously as you do or as serious as a session player or as serious as a pro audio engineer or a pro producer, right? It's just not the same. And Chances are they're still taking it seriously, but not in the way that you think they should, right? Like they take their art seriously. They take their writing seriously. They take their expression seriously. What they just haven't learned yet is what it takes to get a good recording. And that's what we are here for. So just have a little bit of patience and grace in this situation because it's really two different things we're talking about. Existential crisis number five. Why can't I get enough consistent work or consistent income? Will I ever? You know, when I first started doing this, the projects were very few and far between. My first year in business, I think I recorded two artists total. And the next year, it was maybe four or five. The income was super inconsistent and really low. And my prices were low. And my skills were low. <laughs> Over time, however, as I got better and started doing more work and better work and making more connections, the projects kept coming. That meant eventually I was able to raise my prices a little, which got me some better clients, a little bit more serious clients, not just the brand new people looking for a demo, but maybe like a real band who wanted to make an EP. And that made for better projects, which I could then show other people. You see where I'm going with this, right? The first question you should be asking yourself shouldn't be, why can't I get consistent work, but rather, am I doing consistently good work? That's the first step. You have to start doing good work to get more work, right? And like I said, there's no secrets or shortcuts. This business is heavily based on reputation. And I'd say 70% of that reputation comes from the actual final product. That's what clients tend to care about the most. 
And I'd say the other 30% is maybe like the recording experience, your personality, your studio, how well, you know, you work with this person. Are you easy to work with? Good communication, professionalism, right? But primarily it's the product. If the final product is awesome, then people will come back and they'll tell their friends to come record with you also. Now, in terms of trying to make a stable income, well, that's of course directly related to consistent work. And if you want more consistent income, then you have to get more consistent work. But you also have to be able to accept the fact that the revenue in this line of work is based on the spare money of musicians, right? Money that they likely won't even make back from sales or Spotify streams. So you need to accept reality. The money in the music business is by nature inconsistent. The better question, or perhaps the better goal, is to make enough money to where the inconsistency isn't an issue. So let's play a number game here, right? Let's say you made $4,000 in January and $0 in February. That inconsistency can feel like a huge problem, right? Like you can pay your bills in the first month, but then in February, what are you supposed to do? And you'll bemoan the inconsistency of the music business. But here's another example. What if you made $12,000 in January and $2,000 in February? Is that inconsistency really that much of a problem when the numbers are both higher? The disparity from January to February was actually much higher than the first example, right? A $4,000 difference versus a $10,000 difference in the second example. But because the numbers were so much higher in the second example, then you were probably paying your bills just fine. Because in the first example, you're averaging $2,000 a month. But in the second example, you're averaging $7,000 a month. And when the overall average take-home pay is higher and you learn to manage your money well, the inconsistency is not actually the issue. It becomes a lot easier to manage. So to me, rather than asking, how can I make more consistent income month to month? The more important question is, how can I make more money overall so that the inconsistency doesn't matter? Because the inconsistency is simply a reality of this business. We don't always know who's going to call. We don't always know if a client is going to get in a car accident and have to cancel their two-week session. We also don't know if we're going to get a huge project of 10 songs and we're going to make great money. We just don't know. So in my opinion, it's better to zoom out a little bit, look at it on a more annual or at least quarterly scale, and try to think of your income as one big pot that you dole out month to month. And it's you in control of that, not the clients, right? Like the money goes into one big pot and you are in control of what you make per month. If you can get ahead of it and plan accordingly, then you'll be paying September's bills with July's income. You know what I mean? You'll have a buffer in place where you don't have to worry so much about the month-to-month -month inconsistency because you're just taking from a larger pool. Now, yes, over time, my work has gotten more consistent. I am regularly booked. I am generally going to book out sessions for a month, two months, three months, depending on the time of year. But that's a very different conversation than trying to get consistent money month-to-month. Getting consistently booked is a great thing, and that's something that the longer you do this, the better you do this, you will get consistently booked. But if you're hoping for some nice, even round number that's going to be the same month to month, that's probably a pipe dream and probably won't happen. For example, after 17 years of keeping track of my money on this stuff, I still have ups and downs between months. 
I have some consistent trends. Like I know that April and December are generally kind of slow months around the studio because of tax season in the USA and holiday season. I know that summer is generally good. People have a lot of free time and musicians are making more money from gigs and stuff like that. I know that February is generally pretty good and September is generally not. Why? I'm not really sure, but that's what I have learned. But expecting some sort of round number or consistent number, that's not really what this is about, right? If you get consistent work, if you are consistently booked, then that's a win. And from there, you have to kind of create the consistency for yourself when it comes to the actual numbers by pooling your money, having a buffer, and doling it out to yourself month to month. Because the clients, the projects that call, all that stuff, that is not going to be consistent. Now, I highly recommend keeping really good detailed records of this stuff and trying to find your own trends, trying to help yourself see what kind of trends there are or are not, or if there are anything that you can use to help you predict some of the slower months or help you plan accordingly. And for all of those wondering the even bigger picture question, will I ever make good money at this? Will I ever make enough money to where the inconsistency doesn't matter? Well, that's a harder question to answer. There are so many factors, and so much of that depends on how hard you're willing to work, how much music there is in your area, how good your results are, how good your reputation is, how many other studios are there in your area, how much do you charge, right? Like, there's so many other things that go into that. But I think that really is the goal for many of us, is to make enough money to where we don't have to really worry about paying our bills on time, and we don't have to worry about a slow month every now and then, right? And you know, asking, will I ever make money at this, is something that literally every business owner asks themselves. It's not necessarily a helpful question, it's a real question, it's an honest question, but we can't predict the future. Again, what's better is to ask actionable questions like, how can I make more money during the holiday season? Or how can I better keep track of my money to prepare for April being a slow month? How can I have that buffer in my savings ready to go so that I'm paying April's bills with January's money, right? Another thing is, how can you offset some of those slow months, right? For me, I usually list a lot of gear on Reverb in November, December, and January. Why? Because that's when people are more likely to shop, but that's also when I'm slow in the studio. So that's one way I can help offset some of the lower income months from studio services by effectively offering products for sale on Reverb rather than trying to get tons and tons of clients to record in December, which probably just won't happen. So I'll save those Reverb postings until then. And yeah, it would be dishonest for me to leave out the reality that many people working in the music industry, whether it's musicians or audio people or whoever, we have multiple side hustles. For many years, I basically had three music-related jobs. I was playing gigs, I was teaching, and of course I was recording full-time. I was working 60 to 70 hours a week for almost 10 years. Finally, somewhere around 2017, the money was getting a bit more consistent and I was paying my bills on time and I was able to save a little. And that took me 10 years, right? I started doing this for clients in 2007, okay? 10 years of full-time work to basically get consistent money. And so I gradually started cutting back on those side hustles. I stopped playing gigs as much. I stopped working on Sundays. I cut sessions out. And eventually I pretty much quit gigging entirely and quit teaching. And I hired an assistant. All of those things came eventually. 
You know, as my friend in real estate likes to say, I don't try to make money so I can buy more stuff. I try to make money so I can buy back my time. And what he means is he wants to make more so he can work less and hire more people to do work for him so he can spend time with his wife and his kids or just reading a book on his couch. So all of this being said, no, of course, I can't guarantee that you will make money. I can't guarantee that you'll make good money. I can't tell you how long it will take doing this full time before you can make consistent income, nor can I tell you how consistent or inconsistent it will be. I can't say that any of this will be remotely viable for your unique situation or circumstances or goals or dreams or desires, but I can tell you that I believe it's possible. I did it, right? And it was very difficult. It's still difficult. But I believe that if you're good at what you do and you make smart choices with your time and your money and you're clever with your business strategy, you can get consistently booked and make relatively consistent money in this business. And yes, over time, you can make enough money where you don't have to worry about the inconsistency either way. Existential crisis number six. Why don't my mixes sound as good as the pros? I'll start by putting this very bluntly, but I promise there's a good reason for it. The pros mixes sound better than yours because they've been doing it way longer, they have more experience, more ear training, and have a more finely honed intuition than yours. They're working in better recording studios and control rooms than yours, with better gear than yours, with higher budgets than yours, working on better songs than the ones that you work on, with musicians and singers that are better than the ones you work with. Does that sum it up? The reason I state it bluntly is that, of course, their stuff sounds better than yours, right? It shouldn't be that confusing or controversial. We should be able to just say it. It's completely understandable why the pros' stuff sounds better. They have the advantage in almost every single part of the process, right? They've been doing it 30 years longer than you. They're working with the best gear in the world, in the best studios in the world, with top-tier players, top-tier songwriters. They have way bigger budgets than you. I mean, it would actually be pretty hard to screw up when you're in those circumstances. So what I'm getting at with this bluntness is to say, first and foremost, give yourself a break. It's not easy to compete with those records or the pros because we have a very different scenario on our hands in every single aspect, right? Like the music industry is a strange industry because of the democratization of music. It means that any musician, anyone who can record anything can put their song on Spotify in the same pool as Taylor Swift, who grossed over a billion dollars on her Eras tour last year, the highest grossing tour in the history of the music industry. And your local band clients who are coming in to record with you, who have never recorded anything in their life, who have a tiny, tiny little budget and no time, are instantly competing in the same market pool as Taylor Swift, because that's just where we listen to music now. So naturally, as audio engineers, there's this massive pressure put upon us to also compete in that sphere, right? Our clients expect us at whatever price point to be able to make a recording that's just as good as a half million dollar record financed by Sony. It's an absolutely absurd expectation, but nevertheless, it's real and it's there because they have to compete in that sphere. So do we. My point is, recognize that this is a ridiculous thing. Like, this is a ridiculous reality, but it's our reality, and you should give yourself a break. 
Secondly, it's important to understand that we're all in this boat. Every single audio engineer I know deals with this pressure. We all want our stuff to sound as good as it possibly can. That's kind of the whole ballgame. That's why we chose this path, right? The deep, dark abyss. <laughs> um, we're all just trying to make the best sounding recordings that we can. So how can you make your stuff sound more pro or compete with the pros better? Well, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. What I mean is you have to start working towards having the same conditions that the pros have. What does that mean? It means working with better clients in better rooms with better gear and better monitoring environments and with higher budgets. It means having more time to work on it. It means you doing it longer and longer and longer and developing your ears and your taste and your experience and really putting in the hours. I mean, it is a lifelong thing. And I don't say that hyperbolically at all. I really mean it. Getting good at audio is a lifelong discipline. Look at the top pros in the audio industry. Michael Brower, Chad Blake, CLA, Eddie Kramer. These guys have been doing it their entire lives. And again, there aren't really any shortcuts. If you waste your time scouring the internet for this one crazy trick to make your mixes sound pro, you will be disappointed every time. There are no crazy tricks. There are no secrets that the pros are keeping from you. In fact, these days, most of the biggest names have recording and mixing courses available through Pure Mix, Mix with the Masters, etc. You can go see exactly what they're doing for yourself. And spoiler alert, they're generally not doing anything that much different than what you're doing. They're using EQs and compressors and saturators and reverbs and delays, all the same tools that you're using. In fact, sometimes the exact tools that you're using because so many pros mix in the box now. They're just doing it better than you are, and their source material is better. I get it. It's frustrating. We don't like to admit this. A lot of people who get into audio, I find, have a similar personality trait. We're the type of person who is obsessed with getting better or being good at stuff, right? Like, we like being good at stuff. And when we start doing something new and we suck at it, it's very frustrating. <laughs> we want to be good at whatever we do. Why? I don't know. It's just a common trend that I notice in a lot of audio people. And it's that kind of drive that I think makes us good at this. We're willing to do a lot of work to get good at it. It's like this puzzle that we're trying to solve, a code we can't quite crack, and we're all obsessed with it. And you know what's funny? Even many of the pros don't think their stuff sounds pro. Whatever pro means anyway. I was watching this interview with Joe Ciccarelli recently where he said something like, I'm just waiting for the moment where people find out I'm a fraud. I don't really know what I'm doing. This is Joe Ciccarelli, y'all. Like, this is one of the most successful audio engineers in the business. Huge names under his belt, huge records, 10 or 11 Grammys, and nothing but respect from everyone who has ever worked with the dude. And even he feels like his stuff isn't quite there yet. He's still trying to get the perfect snare, the perfect master bus compression, the perfect vocal, the perfect mix, right? So give yourself a break. It's also interesting to note that pro, you know, isn't really a definable thing. It's not really a binary, your mixes sound pro or they don't. There's no one thing that makes you sound pro, whatever that means. Again, in fact, some of the mixes of the pros sound pretty different when you listen to them. 
It's also really fascinating when listening back to some recordings from like the early 90s. We're talking some pretty big budget, high profile projects with an absolutely stacked roster of pros. And noticing that by today's standards, those recordings don't sound as good as we thought. Sure, some of them stand the test of time and they still sound amazing, but others are kind of like, yikes, I could do a better mix than that. And then you realize that, oh, wow, that was recorded in 1991, and this record's budget was a million dollars. So the bar is kind of always moving. Trends change and evolve, and ultimately, it's all still highly subjective. And it's always going to be difficult to like our own stuff. You know, I, I can't tell you how many mixers I know that have had the same experience. They mix something and show their engineer friends and their friends are like, oh man, that sounds great. And then I'm like, really? I think it's okay. I mean, I like that thing you mixed. And then the other mixers is like, what? That? No, this mix is way better than that. And it's like, each of us are like that Spider-Man meme, right? Where we're like, wait, no, your mix was better. And it's like, no, 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 your mix was better. We're always going to be our own worst critics. And I don't know if there's really a way around that. What we all really want is for our stuff to sound great and to be able to stand up side by side with the work of the greats. Again, I can't guarantee that will happen for everyone, but I can tell you with time, with experience, with better clients, better songs, more knowledge and more mixes under your belt, you absolutely can get results that sound just as good, if not better, than any pro's stuff out there. But will you be able to admit it when that happens? I don't know. There's a very high probability that you will get there if you keep at it, but you may not even recognize when you get there, right? You'll reach a lot of little milestones along the way, and you'll have some mixes where you'll say, man, this is is the best mix I've done. But then maybe six months later, you'll have another one where you're like, no, 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 this is the best mix I've done. You do that enough times for 10 years, 15 years, whatever, and you keep improving, always trying to beat your last mix, and there's a good chance your stuff will end up sounding pro. Existential crisis number seven. This is a big one. My spouse slash significant other slash friend slash loved one slash family don't understand why audio is so important to me and why I spend so much time doing it, and I don't know how to help them understand. Okay, let me first say that I am not a licensed therapist or a counselor, so take my opinions with a grain of salt when it comes to your marriage or your relationships. However, I am an audio engineer, and I have been for 17 years, and I have dealt with this my entire life, okay? And not only me, most of my audio friends have struggled with this as well. So I have been through this, I've been there, and I feel for you. As we've already established, audio engineering is a strange field, and it's hard for people who aren't audio engineers to understand it. To many people on the outside, it can really just look like more music stuff, right? Like another music-related hobby, or even just a part of the whole music thing. Like, oh, cool, you play guitar, you play gigs, and you record. But it's really a totally different thing, and most people don't get that. To many of us, it's a completely separate discipline. It's so much more than just more music stuff. And it's certainly much more than just a hobby. I mean, if you crack open a thesaurus, here are some synonyms for the word hobby. Pastime, side interest, distraction, recreation, activity. And some antonyms of hobby? Work, vocation, profession. (laughs) Unfortunately, in the English language, there aren't really any words that accurately describe something that 
is like how audio engineering feels to most of us. There aren't really any words that mean more than a hobby, but slightly less than an addiction. I think to most audio people, it feels much closer to words like a craft, a discipline, a pursuit, or even just a field of study. For those of us that take it really seriously, we have a deep appreciation for it, and at times it can definitely border on an obsession. And mostly that's because it's a really deep field with so many interconnected pieces. It's not just like recording, right? It's not one thing, and most people don't understand that. Recording is a blanket term, but underneath that, it's microphones and cabling and outboard gear, monitoring, acoustics, electronics, power and grounding, as well as producing, arranging, editing, mixing, mastering, and even a bit of like music history and understanding current music and what's on the top 40. But even within each of those, if you zoom in further, each of them is their own field of study, right? Like mixing is also not just one thing. It's not one skill. It's thousands of small skills. It's balance, depth, width, EQ, compression, reverb, delay, saturation, busing, routing. Or even if we talk about acoustics, I mean, acoustics is one of the few fields in the audio world where you can get a PhD. And that's just one small part of what we have to kind of understand to make records. And people on the outside just don't really get that. They don't really understand just how deep the rabbit hole goes. And they don't understand that if you want to make good records, you kind of have to get good at all of those things. I think a more comparable activity to compare it to in a way that maybe more people would understand would be like restoring classic cars, right? It's not just a casual hobby that anyone can do on a Saturday afternoon. It requires a lot of tools, a lot of skills, a lot of knowledge about a lot of things. And most of the time, it's a lifelong pursuit that takes decades to master. You can't just restore a classic car, right? Like you have to know about engines, brakes, transmission systems, fuel systems, electrical work, metal work, upholstery, painting. It is really, really deep. And it's so much more than a hobby. Again, it's more of a craft or a passion or a field of study that has lots of little things under it. I'm sure that many of us have felt dismissed, disrespected, or even insulted by other people in our lives saying things to us like, hey, you still doing the whole music thing? Or, oh, cool, you've got a little studio at your house. Or worse, people are just mean and they're like, oh, well, I mean, that's not, that's not a real job. Or you just sit on your butt all day and turn knobs. And yeah, I've had people in my life tell me those things. And yes, they are insulting. They're very mean. I mean, imagine telling an electrician, you just play with wires all day, or telling a professional chef who's put in 30 years of work, oh, that's not a real job, you're just playing with food. I mean, it's just ignorant, right? And frankly, it's just, you would never say that to them. But unfortunately, in this industry, it's really common to be looked at as kind of a joke. But here's the thing, it's not their fault for not understanding this. Your friends, your family, your spouse, your husband, your wife, it's not a widespread or well-understood career or field, and there are a lot of hobbyists out there who don't take it seriously, and there are a lot of content creators on social media that make recording look like a joke, or they make it look like it is just pressing buttons on plastic toys. Of course, all of us can tell the difference between someone just kind of doing it for fun and someone doing it for real, but the average person can't. Like, they don't know the difference between 
Pro Tools and some app on your phone. They don't know the difference between barefoot speakers or ATCs and speakers that you can get from Best Buy. They don't know the difference between a U47 and an SM57. Like, they really don't know that there's a difference. So I think much of the onus is on us to help our significant others and the important people in our lives understand just how important it is to us and that it's not just a hobby, that it's a serious discipline that requires a lot of dedication, a lot of education, and a lot of hard work. And for those of us that take it seriously, we're not asking for praise or accolades or pats on the back. We just don't want to be treated like we're goofing off or playing with toys or messing around. So let me tell you about my personal experience with this. As long as my wife and I have been together, even back when we started dating, I've been doing audio the whole time. So she knew it was important to me, and it helped that it was actually my job. But even after a few years of dating, and up through the first few years of our marriage, even she struggled to understand, like, why does it take so much time and effort and brain space? And like I said, she didn't know how deep the rabbit hole really went. Now, thankfully, my wife has never said anything to me like it's not a real job or you're just pushing buttons or goofing around, but I do think she still felt like, man, he's spending a lot of time doing this, almost to the point of being an unhealthy obsession. And yeah, we had some fights about it. Now, again, I'm also a business owner and small businesses already take up a lot of your brain space and your time, regardless of industry. And unfortunately, this particular field just so happens to be one that requires a lot of time to master. Years, decades even. And like I said before, the music industry is weird in that the second you put your music up on Spotify, you're instantly competing with top pros in the field. There's no entry tier. There's no grace period. There's no minor league. You're expected to compete at the highest level of quality immediately. It's like learning how to swim and then immediately being forced to compete in the Olympics against Michael Phelps. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd. But that's the reality. So to us, it can feel almost like a race, a race to learn and improve and get better and learn as much as we can as fast as we can. And in the audio world, fast is still years of work because the best of the best have been doing this for decades. It's just that kind of field. Now, in preparation for this episode, I talked to my wife about this topic and I asked her how she feels now versus how she felt back then and what has changed. She said that for her, the biggest thing, her biggest frustration was the time, the sheer amount of time that I put into it. She said, Early on in our relationship, she definitely felt like, man, why does he spend so much time doing this? Why does it take so much time? What is he doing with all that time? Doesn't he want to spend time with me too? And, you know, I know it's his job, but he also likes doing it. It's his hobby too. So how much of the work he's doing is for clients, but how much is just for him, for fun? She also told me that she didn't fully grasp just how much goes into running a recording studio and being an audio engineer. Like I said before, it's not just recording. Aside from the day-to-day -day of recording and mixing, running a studio is also maintaining gear, trying out new software, updating software, doing room testing and treatment, cleaning up, wrapping cables, organizing things, researching and learning new things, trying to stay on top of emails, talking to clients about projects, rendering mixes and stems, 
getting mixed notes and going back and forth with clients, multiple clients at once, prepping sessions, editing sessions, changing guitar strings, changing drum heads, tuning vocals, all while trying to get better at recording and mixing for clients, trying to make money and trying to compete in the industry against top pros. So as with most things in relationships, much of this comes down to good communication. And something that I failed to do early on was communicate to my wife a few really important points that I think would have made it easier. Here are those points. Number one, yes, this is my job and it is my hobby, but it's so much more than just recording. It's a really deep and complex field that requires a lot of skills and knowledge, and yes, a lot of time. But I'm truly and honestly passionate about it. It gives me purpose, and it's really important to me. Number two, the time I spend doing this is rarely just for fun. I mean, yes, it is fun for me, but I'm not just going out into the studio and goofing around for no reason. I'm working on something because there's work that needs to be done, whether that's maintenance stuff or actual work for clients. But there's a lot to be done in this field. I might be testing out my room or testing acoustic treatments or trying to interpret measurements, which can take hours and hours and hours. Maybe I'm learning a new skill. I'm not just goofing around to pass the time. It's not really that kind of craft. Right? Like, no carpenter goes out into the wood shop and cuts scrap pieces of wood for fun. Right? There's usually a distinct goal when you go out to the wood shop. Like, I'm going to start a new project. I'm going to build a chair or a cabinet. So there's work that needs to be done. Planning, prep, making sure I have the materials, the tools, the knowledge, and the design ready to go. And then there's actually doing it. It's difficult to describe to people, but maybe an even more accessible example would be like, who goes to the gym just for fun? I mean, yes, it may be fun for you, but there's usually some kind of goal attached to it. It's often something that people take really seriously, their health, their looks, their mental health, their well-being, or even just being a part of a community with friends. And nobody laughs at that, right? They're important. And just like with that, we have very serious goals attached to audio. We want to be good at it. We want to make great music that people can enjoy. We want to learn and develop our skills because it's fulfilling and it gives our lives more meaning than just an average hobby does. And for many of us, we want to make audio our careers. And to be able to do that because of how the industry is, you have to know your stuff and take it seriously. Because when you're working with real people's money and real people's art, they're trusting you to make it sound great and compete with pros. And that's something we have to take very seriously. And number three, ultimately, I should have communicated to my wife that even though this takes a lot of time, I also want to spend time with her. I want to have a healthy work-life balance. And I'm not doing this to get away from her or to avoid her or to be alone or because I care about it more than her. Not at all. I spend time doing audio stuff because I care about it. And I also want to spend time with her because I care about her. I know that may seem simple or obvious or that our significant others should know these things already or should know that we want to spend time with them. But honestly, sometimes they just need to hear it. And like I said, in my situation, the time felt a little easier to justify because it's what I do for a living. It was paying our bills. 
So I can understand that if it's something you do on the side or something that you don't do for money at all, it could be a little bit harder to argue this case. But I would contend that just because you don't do something for money doesn't mean it's not serious or that it's stupid or that it's pointless. I think that's modern society talking, and it's a critique that I have of how humans judge each other on this weird scale of value. You know, like, just because you love something or that you're good at it doesn't mean you have to do it for money. You know, nobody makes fun of the fact that mothers all around the world have cooked beautiful, wonderful meals for their families for generations upon generations, and they don't want to be chefs. They do it because they care. They care about it. They care about their family. No, no one's looking at them saying like, well, if you're doing this, how come you're not doing it for money? And it's like, uh, what? <laughs> you know, in fact, for some people, audio is one of those things that they don't want to do for money because they don't want to turn it into a job. And take it from me, when you start out doing audio, you likely won't make a lot of money. That's just how this industry works. You have to pay your dues, put in a lot of time, develop a good reputation and build it from the ground up. It's a long, slow process. So I get it. It can be difficult for spouses or parents or significant others or friends to see the value in it, especially early on. It can feel like a massive amount of time and money spent on something that doesn't have a lot of tangible payoff. But if you communicate this openly and make it clear to the people in your life that they are important to you, but so is this, and that it's a serious craft, and that just by nature it takes a long time to master, but that you get a lot of personal satisfaction from doing it, and that it is a long game and you're trying to build something, then hopefully they'll have a better understanding of why you're always spending so much time out in the studio. Now, I should say, if you are doing audio to get away from your spouse or your friends or your loved ones, uh, I, I don't know if I can help you there. <laughs> you should probably talk to an actual therapist about that one. Number eight, and this one kind of ties into the last one. Why does all this stuff take so much time? Will I ever get faster at this? Will I ever be able to reclaim some of my time? As we just discussed, this stuff takes an enormous time investment. Aside from just being a really wide field of study with a lot of facets, it seems like each one of those facets takes a ton of time to learn, develop, and to actually get good at. But why? Well, let me tell you a story. When I was mixing some of my earliest projects, I remember spending days mixing songs, right? I remember putting a bunch of different mixes on a CD and taking them out to my car and listening to 10 different versions of a mix, making notes, trying to make something that was actually passable. I'd listen on five different systems, my studio speakers, my headphones, a boombox, my car, and a little clock radio speaker system that I had. I tried everything I could to make it work on as many systems as possible, and even in the end, while it did sound pretty decent, I was exhausted, and I didn't even like it anymore. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, there's no way I can do this for every record that I make. I can't spend three, four weeks mixing a record. You know, if I could go back in time, I would tell myself that you will get faster at this, but a lot of things need to happen for that to materialize. On the practical side, I think monitoring and your acoustic environment are some of the most important factors to saving yourself time. If you have to check your mixes on five different systems just to get something that translates, you really need to reevaluate your mixing environment. 
It's causing you to spend way too much time chasing your tail, listening on tons of systems, and doing revision after revision, and getting inconsistent results, and you're sending it to clients, and they're like, there's way too much bass, but on your system, you don't think there's too much bass. These days, I don't check my mixes on any reference systems at all, aside from maybe the occasional listen on headphones or on my iPhone speaker just out of curiosity. But 99% of my work is done sitting in this chair, in this room, on these speakers, which I know and trust. And I've put a ton of work into this monitoring environment to make it as accurate as I can get it. Measuring the response with a measurement microphone, moving speakers around, moving my listening position around, finding the best spot for both, heavily treating the room. You get the idea. You can't just put up a pair of speakers and learn them. You certainly can't put up a pair of speakers and just immediately trust them. Seriously, I've said it a million times on the podcast, and every time I beg listeners to believe me, if you haven't measured your room and you have no idea what's going on with the accuracy of your speakers and you haven't put in the work to find the best spot for your speakers and to treat your room, then you will struggle, okay? You will chase your tail. You will make mistakes. You will get frustrated. You'll be listening to a confusing lie and fighting it until the day you finally decide to deal with it. I know that seems harsh and intense, but seriously, take my word for it. Because here's the thing, recording, mixing, and mastering are challenging even in a great room. So why make it harder on yourself, right? An analogy I've used before is like, if you were a graphic designer, why would you accept working on a monitor that had messed up colors or dead pixels or a stretched aspect ratio? That would be crazy, right? Like, how could you ever trust anything you made? And to that, imagine people on forums telling you, oh, just learn your screen, man. I mean, it's crazy talk, right? But that's how tons of people operate in the audio domain. I can't tell you how many audio engineers do this with their monitoring for years, and they just accept it. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers to me. Mostly, I think it's because people are afraid to measure their setup and find out that their room sucks or that their speakers suck. The only thing that actually convinces them to change is when the desire to get better results and save more time finally outweighs that fear. Now, all of this may sound a bit harsh, but truly, I'm trying to save you time right now. The truth is, yes, this stuff does take an immense amount of time. It takes years of practice and failure and experience. So why make it harder on yourself by having a monitoring environment that's lying to you? Please don't, okay? Please take my advice. Take the advice of the pros. If there's no other advice you listen to on this episode, maybe try that. Now, aside from the monitoring, I do think there are some practical things you can do to help speed things up. One thing is you can purposely give yourself time limits. Treat it like you're exercising. If it currently takes you 10 hours to mix a song, try setting a timer on your phone for eight hours. Just see if you can do it. Sometimes you have to straight up practice doing it faster. By setting some time limits, you might actually find that you already can do it faster. Another thing to consider is the use of templates. Now, I'm not talking about having preset chains for everything necessarily. I'm just talking about having some of the bigger picture stuff that wastes 20 minutes every single time to set up. Have that stuff taken care of on a template. Stuff like your effects buses, some reverbs and delays, your main mix groups, your master bus. There's no sense in setting that stuff up from scratch every single time, especially if you find that you use a lot of the same reverbs. Now, the better computer you have, the more you can fit in your template. You know, you can fit 10 different reverbs and 10 different delays, but you don't have to load them up. You don't have to tweak the settings. You can just audition them really quickly and tweak from there. 
There are a lot of other practical ways to save time and be more efficient in the studio. And for more on that, I'm going to be doing an episode very soon about my top 10 workflow hacks. So make sure to check that out when it comes out. For now, suffice it to say that so much of it comes down to noticing the parts of your process and your workflow that take a long time and then looking into solutions for them. And a lot of small time saves will eventually add up to saving yourself a lot of time in the grand scheme. But we'll talk more about that on that episode. So getting back to the big question, why does this stuff take me so long and will I ever get faster at it? Well, simply put, it takes a long time because it's complicated and there are a lot of things to learn, a lot of things to get better at, and thousands of tiny decisions that go into every single production you do. And as time goes on, you will get faster at making those decisions. They'll become more intuitive, more obvious, and you won't really have to think about them. All of this will become easier, much more obvious, and the path from point A to point B will just be a matter of intuition for you. Things that used to take you 10 hours will eventually take you six, and then five, and then maybe four. Hey, over time, it's also likely that more plugins and software will come out that potentially save you even more time on certain things. You'll find things in your workflow that are inefficient and find ways to economize them. You know, there's a great interview I watched with Jonah Hill where they asked him, why is Martin Scorsese such a good director? And his response was something like this. I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like this. He said, okay, you like chess, right? So imagine that you could make the most complex chess move ever with no clock, meaning you could spend four hours to make the perfect move, right? And you're this brilliant chess player. Now imagine that you could make an even better move than that brilliant chess player, but you could do it in 30 seconds. It's advanced problem solving and what might take other brilliant directors, I'm talking masters, a lot of time to solve, Martin can solve that problem in 30 seconds. I love that story. And, you know, if you look at Martin Scorsese's career, how long has he been doing it, right? At the time of making this podcast, Martin Scorsese is 81 years old. He's been making films since 1962. That's 62 years ago, okay? 62 years of experience making films coupled with a brilliant creative mind is why he can make complex decisions in 30 seconds. It's not just because he learned this one crazy hack to film directing, right? It's because he's been doing it for 62 years. That story reminds me of a quote that's often attributed to Albert Einstein, where he says that genius is making complex ideas simple, not making simple ideas complex. I love that idea, and I think Martin Scorsese in that story is a perfect example of the type of genius that Albert Einstein was talking about. It's not about making things simple because you're lazy or because you just don't want to mess with it or because things are simple and you're trying to reduce how complex the nature of the world actually really is. No, it's not about that. Real geniuses can make things simple because it's simple for them right? It's easy for them. And why is it easy for them? Because they're brilliant and because they have experience. In the case of Martin Scorsese, 62 years of it, right? It's very easy to do something that you've done for 62 years. And where other people see a crowded mess of thorns and sharp bushes and things that are going to cut you through the forest, they just see right through it. And they're like, nope, I've been here before. This is all we need to do. This is it. And it's simple for them, right? And that is the power of knowledge and experience. So the moral of the story is be patient, but also be observant and be willing to learn new things and change your workflow to get the results you need. 
practice creative problem solving and try to figure out the most efficient way of doing things without sacrificing quality. Try to look for things that take you time. Literally, like, write them down and try to figure out ways to make that more efficient. Try to be honest with yourself about your monitoring. Try to be honest with yourself about how long it takes you to do thing X, Y, Z and try to figure out why and what you can do about it. You will get faster at this stuff, I promise. And even though it can and often does take an immense amount of time, you will get better at making the most of it. So this episode went on a lot longer than I thought, so I'm going to have to split it up into two episodes. So make sure to stick around for part two of our top 15 existential crises of audio engineers. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to check us out on Discord, join the community, talk about things, meet other people. If you'd like to support our podcast on Patreon or with a PayPal donation, you can go to recordingloungepodcast.com and go over to the support RL tab, or you can find the link in the show notes on the description of this podcast. And I'll talk to you next time on part two. See ya.